for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. And we are back for an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. And I'm noted independent spirit, Louis Fertel. How inspirational am, mm. am I the way I walk through life? <laughs> I think of myself as a um, dependent spirit. Dependent on spirits? Yeah. Yes. Depend- I become you know, dependent I'm, on I'm, spirits I'm, around you. Yes. <laughs> I'm literally blind spirit, actually. <laughs> oh, that's nice. A Tony for Angela yeah. Lansbury in your name. Yeah. <laughs> I would be... Angela Lansbury and Blythe Spirit. I see that for myself. You will enter a turban era soon. I see that for you. <laughs> you know what reminded me of Blythe Spirit oddly this weekend? Did you see the uh, SAG Awards and what Barbara Streisand wore for her lifetime achievement thing? Yes. Excuse me. You know what she looked like? A woman who sells you a mysterious lamp at a bazaar. That's what I thought she looked like. <laughs> Scheherazade, you know that you sort take, of vibe? Then you take it home and... <laughs> What's in this lamp? Right, right. Barbara Eden. Yes. Mm. Uh, well, we have a packed episode this week. Uh, we're doing the intro at the beginning this week. Okay. You know, just 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 letting people know what's coming up in the episode. All right. So that you can turn it off if you don't care. Controversial move. All right, let's go. <laughs> uh, we have got a lot of news coming up this week. We've got the Independent Spirit Awards happened. Uh, Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve, good guess. <laughs> Have you seen that YouTube video? Yes. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Uh, he goes, Dennis Villeneuve. Yes. Like he's from, yes, I'm going to say Puerto Rico. It. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he had some interesting comments about dialogue in films. Also, Shea Diaz is out. And as you know, Che Diaz, too real for the general population. That's my criticism of that show. Che Diaz was giving a slice of reality that even Carrie Bradshaw couldn't handle. Yes. So this week, our guest is Denai Guerrera from The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live. Yes. A and new sequel series. Precisely. A Black Panther legend. A unmistakable presence in Black Panther. And to Lewis's chagrin, an person who gets me talking about nyu that's right uh i watch me take to the streets in protest after this episode <laughs> actually that was by the way one of my favorite jokes at um the spirit awards from 80 bryant 
she said something about how people from NYU don't shut up about being from NYU. And that is just true. I mean, as you'll know from this podcast, if you listen for even five seconds. It's a drinking game at this point. Uh, Also, this week, we are going to get into the harrowing. There's really only one way to describe it. uh, Harrowing Wendy Williams documentary on Lifetime. Where is Wendy Williams? And hopefully we'll get into her infamous conversation with Whitney Houston from about 20-some years ago, too, which is a thrilling listen if you haven't put it on recently. You have to clutch a table while you listen to that interview. It's not comfortable (laughs) for one second. Uh, But before that, we've got a bunch of news that we've got to hit. So first of all, Shea Diaz, they're out. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't mean the closet. They're out also they sounds out like... They're out pet store. <laughs> <laughs> They're out sounds like a Che Diaz comedy concert. <laughs> Remember when they called that a comedy concert and we just had to pretend that it was a human expression that people say? Well, what's actually funny about that is I have friends who do comedy concerts. If you go see Larry Owens in New York City, that's actually the definition of a comedy concert. There's comedy being done. And they're singing. So I guess you would call it you know, a comedic concert. Yes. Right. I mean, Matt Rogers, comedy concerts. I love, you know? I love but, disparagingly calling him a musical comedian. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my favorite musical comedian. I love when he gets out the banjo. But this also implies that Shay Diaz was also singing songs that we never heard. And boy, do I believe that. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, Shay came out like one of the Animaniacs. They're all three of them. How many how many Shea Diaz scenes are just on the cutting room floor? <laughs> right. Uh, trying out material. Because the material that made it to air, again, too real for the general population how hackneyed it was. Things about, oh, I took an Uber from my living room to my whatever. Oh, come on. I do find it interesting that Shea Diaz is now out. Of course, there were, there were the rumors before that uh, – Sarah Ramirez was axed from the series because of their stance on Palestine. And people did point out that one of the leads of the series, Cynthia Nixon, is, you know, in these streets. She's at the marches. She's very vocal. And and way more vocal than Sarah Ramirez, frankly. Yes, of course. And there were other people trying to devil's advocate that online by saying, well, Cynthia Nixon is the lead of the show. So, of course, she can say what she wants. You sound stupid. Yeah, right. (laughs) Basically, Shea Diaz had reached their natural conclusion, which I'm glad that Michael Patrick King realized. But it's still still silly to me in how long Shea Diaz lasted. Because when you think of the original Sex in the City – when Miranda broke up with Shea Diaz, it should have been the last time we saw them. Right, 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 right. No, the arc that Shea Diaz got is longer than most characters would ever get on the original Sex in the City. I mean, this is basically like John Slattery's character getting to be on for three seasons in a row or something, you know? Just getting pissed on all over the city. <laughs> with his cute little pencil neck. <laughs> Actually, that would have been a very fun arc to have seen, by the way. Carrie ruining this politician's uh, political career by mentioning that they love water sports and then, I don't know, him getting revenge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it didn't really mix with politics a lot, the original show. Or like New New York's version of politics, which of course would make sense if it dovetailed more with Carrie Bradshaw's life. Speaking of that, did you know in the original Sex and the City, 
Candace Bergen played an editor at Vogue, right? In the final seasons. Yes. Did you know that Candace Bergen's real life daughter it runs Vogue.com now? Oh. So bizarre. I she did not she know just that. did an interview with her own mom talking about the black and white ball from uh, Feud, Capote versus the Swans, because her mom went there. And the headline from the article is Candace Bergen doesn't remember if the black or white ball was fun, which is amazing. <laughs> I, well, at least the article is fun, you know, because I can't think of anything more Vogue than. Candace Bergen's daughter working there and running Vogue.com and also doing an interview with her own mother. <laughs> yeah, right. She does have a bit of access there that, you know, blurs journalistic lines. But you know what? I'm just glad journalism is alive oh, and please. well at Vogue.com. Oh, okay? Yeah. Yeah, please. Yes, yes, Everything yes. else is dead. <laughs> no. you. Every week something gets shuttered and you're like, I think I knew people who worked there. But then you think, was that 2016 actually? Have they not been there for seven years? You know? And then there's Vice.com, which is shut down, which has actually sent me down a rabbit hole of reading old Vice.com articles. Because let me tell you, if you weren't there, there was a time. The 2010s, when you were re- getting a Vice.com article, uh, pulling one up, that was, that was beautiful. Do you remember like the Vice.com's guide to partying? Right, because it sort of blurred. It was like... Like it, Rolling Stones hard journalism mixed with like the Village mm. Voice, right? Like it wanted to be yes. like on the streets of New York and then also have like a kind of global um, scale. It was all we do drugs. Uh, everyone's doing cocaine. Here's the parties we're at. It was it was very much a raucous magazine. I'm just using the word raucous. I don't know. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of fun, but now we have to get into the uh, harrowing part of the episode. When we get back, we'll be discussing Wendy Williams, her new documentary on Lifetime, her run-in with Whitney Houston, and whether or not we're all still standing because of all these things. And also this week, Denis Villeneuve talked about how he hates dialogue in films. And well, you know, our chatty Kathy Lewis has some things to say about that. So we will also get into that this week. We'll be right back. Stop your doom scrolling and streamline your political giving with Vote Save America's Anxiety Relief Program. Here's how it works. You set up a recurring monthly donation at the level that feels right for you and we'll send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races. Then, at the end of each month, we'll tell you where your dollars went. Head to votesaveamerica.com to sign up now and make a difference one dollar at a time. Paid for by Vote Save America. votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Where is Wendy Williams? A Lifetime docuseries about the former talk show host dropped over the weekend. Those of us who were hoping for some tea on Wendy's absence since her show was canceled, instead we're faced with a heartbreaking reality of Wendy's cognitive and emotional decline in a documentary that is not only, as we said, harrowing, but also exploitative. Well, there's a lot of questions going on here because, uh, as you said, it's clear she has advanced dementia in certain ways, so Obviously, she can't agree to certain things. And in fact, during a lot of this movie, she's talking about what she thinks is her plan for getting back on television. Lo and behold, she is on our televisions. 
Yeah. Uh, also, by the way, to point out what Wendy Williams has, a lot of articles have let people know that it is the same cognitive disease that Bruce Willis has. Aphasia, right. So soon she won't be yeah. able to recognize faces at all, basically. But part of the disease that she has, it, it was it was also weird just trying to figure out whether or not it was a natural decline. What, there was a lot of sort of insinuation that it is alcohol-induced as well, many of her cognitive issues. And let's just talk about that first. The documentary really leans in on Wendy has a drinking problem. Right. Yes. And like uh, she'll be at a restaurant later on with her family and they like she'll like instinctively ask for a drink and then they say to change it to a Coke or something. So it it comes up again and again. Yeah. And particularly in some of the last parts of the documentary, which is it's four episodes that aired on Saturday and Sunday on Lifetime. Uh, The bottles Party-sized bottles being found in her bathroom, being found in her bed. Uh, That was sort of the part that they were leaning into with she's drinking a lot. But first of all, I just want to talk about the fact that a lot of people were saying this documentary feels exploitative. Mm -hmm. What did she consent to? Um, Is Lifetime profiting off of this in sort of an evil way? And – I want to say that I felt that way in the first couple of episodes of it. The first two parts, the first two hours. The Sunday night episodes, I don't know if I felt that it was particularly exploitative of her. I actually feel like the last half of the documentary was the part that we really needed to see. because So the, the documentary starts out with, they were planning to document her podcast comeback. Right. And then it became very clear that this podcast was never happening. And I couldn't even tell if it was her manager, and we'll get to him, Mm -hmm. uh, if, if it was his incompetence or if he really thought that this was how business was supposed to be done in regards to the podcast. Because there's one scene where she's being interviewed about when there's a podcast coming and they're like, maybe you should shoot a pilot, you know, like let people know like what they're getting. And his response is, you know, you, you don't think that's gonna, you know, ruin the sale. You know, if we give them some of the sauce too early, I'm like, what are you talking about? Also, it's Wendy Williams. Like you want, yes, you should give people a taste of what it's going to be. The thing that they will eventually buy. Yeah. (laughs) We also know what it's going to be about. Yeah. It's Wendy. You know, it's not I don't think that she was going to do a hard shift into suddenly hosting Red Scare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a surreal shift from Wendy Williams. <laughs> but the second half of it was really the part where I think you get into the conservatorship that she was placed under um legally um the new york courts essentially took power away from her family her son kevin used to have power of attorney and then it was decided that she he was spending too much of her money you know it was in a $80,000 a year apartment uh spending about $100,000 a year on uber eats that's how much i spend a month in new york so i i was not <laughs> yeah what deal is he getting by any of that yeah right <laughs> Must live next door to Sweet Green or something. And then power was given to this random woman 
Um, we we now know that um, her name is Simone Morrissey uh, because she sued Lifetime to try and get the documentary to not be aired. But this brings up – I was watching it with a friend and they were asking me a lot about – the comparisons between this and Britney Spears, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's immediately what would come to mind for people, or maybe even Amanda Bynes. And the difference here is Britney was very specifically a thing where we learned that her father and certain other family members were taking advantage of her. Mm-hmm. And this was harder because the family, for the most part, seems very loving, seems like they're very concerned for her. And I think what it really brought up, they have even an expert come in and talk about um, guardianships and how the courts now are just like not putting people under family care anymore. Um, I don't know how you're placed under a conservatorship or guardianship and then seeing the news that we would see about Wendy over the past year. Right. Passing out in the Louis Vuitton store, being just drunk and sort of being on Instagram live being crazy. Right, right, right. No, also the family – at, at least to our eyes, is explicitly like, we hope this airs and people understand now what we've gone through. So at least there, and, and it doesn't feel, and, they, and they're clearly very loving towards her. And you see these interactions with her that are also a bit instructive, I'd hate to say, because we don't have a lot of docu-series that I've seen about dealing with someone with aphasia, with advanced dementia. Because let me be clear, narrative features about this subject are bracing enough. You know, if you put on Still Alice <laughs> or Amor, um, you know, mm. I would say these are very respected movies and also the least rewatched movies in history because they are so tough, you know, like nobody's like, oh, it's Christmas time. Put on away from her. You know, it's like it's hard <laughs> to look at, you know. And so watching this, which documents a real person and we're very familiar with how she was before this all began. So we're making the comparison between, you know, the lickety split compulsively articulate and funny and bitchy. Uh, Wendy Williams it, it, compared to what she is now this was among the most harrowing things I've seen all year like of the past year um, I will remember watching it and not knowing it was going to quote unquote go so hard every scene just her looking at the camera not looking like the same person she used to be in a way um, I, I think it's like kind of an important doc but I, not to say it's not exploitative in certain ways but I just can't think of another thing like it about a celebrity you know Yeah, I think the thing that really sort of makes it instructive here is the fact that we know, we know Wendy Williams. Yeah. You like you talk about she used to be funny and bitchy uh, and really just great with one liners. And of course, there was always that bit of her personality that was a little bit off or uh, out of bounds and rude. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, but she'd be talking about something and then also abruptly shift. It, almost like she had ADD. Yes. Uh, which she'd be just talking about a topic and then five different topics would tumble out of her mouth within one minute. This has turned that into a kind of uncomfortable meanness. I think that mm-hmm. there was a lot, there were a lot of scenes where what would sort of used to be funny, her commenting on how someone's dressed or, you know, saying something else about someone else uh, in the media, her commenting just on anybody who came to the house, the woman doing her nails, for instance, or an assistant, it was just mean and it was just sort of nasty. And you could tell that she didn't even know that she was doing that. No, it's, I think that's kind of part of what makes this disease so tough is like, it just brings your sort of, phobias and um, your 
mean predilections to the fore, like you can't filter them. And so you just become this person who's unable to say anything that isn't um, rude in certain cases, you know? Now, I do want to say that I'm also grateful for the third part of this series. The There's a part where Wendy goes to L.A. without telling her manager, without telling the family, without telling the legal guardian. It goes with this publicist that she's had around her, Sean, who is essentially trying to replace the manager. And she takes her to L.A. for a meeting with NBC Universal. We don't get to see the meeting, but there is no way that meeting went well. No. And the moment where Wendy is just on the sidewalk looking at her Hollywood star, Ugh. and then some of the dolls pass by her, they're like, Wendy, we love you. And I'm sorry, there were actually some funny parts of the documentary, uh, uncomfortably funny parts. She says, I have this meeting with NBC Universal. And I think one of the dolls says, Boots. <laughs> Remember when we say that? This is this is definitely from a year and a half ago, two years ago. I say, but I want to emphasize that I say boots all the time. I'm still part of the problem. <laughs> uh, but she's dressed in this Gucci top, these short shorts, fishnet stockings, uh, Lara Croft hiking through the Antarctic boots, and talking about how the Wendy show is going to be more sexy like this, and she, you know, not you know, dressed up glam and dresses and things that the Wendy Williams show used to be. She's she's younger and she's sexier now that she's talking about how she's planning to go to NBC Universal. And I don't know, just seeing this woman driving Wendy around this point where she asked Wendy, do you want to go to the Oscars? And Wendy's like, what? And she's like, the award show. It was horrifying to me. And I feel like, yes, Lifetime might have been there are parts of this that are exploitative, you could say, but I also feel like at some point the people making this show, the people who had worked with her on previous documentaries, are watching this unfold and are documenting it because they want people to see what's happening to her. Right, right, right. Also, I was very touched by certain people um, talking with Wendy, like Black China at the beginning, I had oh, a conversation with her, beautiful. and I was like, Okay, everybody needs a friend like Black China. Uh, <laughs> I did not understand that this woman was so soulful. Uh, it was really lovely watching her lovingly deal with a friend who obviously is not what she once was. And I think it also taps into that Wendy that we sort of didn't know. Uh, the Wendy who she says that Wendy used to make fun of her as Black China, obviously, because she would do her hot topics. But when she went on the show... She had just a sweetness to her, and she said, can I call you Angela? You feel like Angela to me, not Black China when you're sitting in front of me. And then she says that they went out for food afterwards and then would continue to hang out. It reminded me of that veneer just sort of drops when you're in front of some people. I think you remember a few years ago when I went on the Wendy Williams show. Yes. We're doing that Hot Topic panel, and then truly as soon as the show wraps – uh, I'm just taking a picture and she sort of grabs my arm and she was like, that was so much fun. You're coming back. You were great. And this was truly before COVID happened. Uh, so obviously I never went back and then the decline yeah. publicly started. But just to see her like all business and then right after that, still in that moment, just saying it into my ear while we're taking a photo and the crowd is all still there. I'm like, that is the woman that she really was. And I think that also explains why for such a polarizing figure who would say a lot of mean and nasty things about people in the media, 
there's also still so much love for her. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, also, it's like, even though she would be incendiary from time to time, she wouldn't say too too much that was... I mean, I can think of times where I have been literally mad at what she said. But for the most part, you want somebody to be unfiltered about celebrities and the world they live in. You know, it's like it just you're waiting for somebody to say it for you. Um, And which brings us to the topic of her conversation with Whitney Houston from 20 years ago, which we must get into. Listening to this back, the thing that that sticks out to me most, Whitney Houston, much as she is digging at Wendy and kind of poking at her and occasionally is angry and is occasionally seemingly unhinged. There's really nothing you can say to unseat Wendy Williams because she sort of owns being trashy or owned being a mean. So at the end of the day, like Whitney Houston saying things like you just run your mouth. It's like, well, that's exactly what she does. Correct. You know, it's like, it's like (laughs) she has no defenses actually. And that makes it better for her. And there's also a part where, when you could tell Whitney is enjoying sparring with yes, her. To- yes, because because Whitney Houston is extremely witty. Yeah, and there's just a moment where you won't have that anymore. It's just you don't really have celebrities who spar with each other anymore like that. Wendy had it on her show. I mean, there's Omarosa who does it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, let let us not forget Omarosa with Bethany Frankel on her talk show. Uh, she was like, "I worked in the White House. You bake cupcakes." Uh, those moments, but there aren't really people who spar like that anymore. I think it's mostly because we've gotten away from radio. We've gotten away from really interesting talk shows. To be honest. No shade to Kelly Oki. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, think and, of even how the difference uh, between how Howard Stern once was and what he is now. He's obviously still a fabulous radio host, but it's there's not there's not the sense of really digging at a guest on the show or like being I don't want to say mean, but like critical. In a way, this reminds me of the Independent Spirit Awards this weekend. Now, I thought Adi Bryant did an amazing job, but. Mm-hmm. The way in which she said, I feel like being a real award show host right now, I'm going to make fun of the audience. And then she just said, Natalie Portman, you stupid bitch. And then like shied away from like the, the joke was she was supposed to make like a real roast joke about Natalie Portman and just came up uh-huh. with something offensive. But at the same time, I feel like that's the tenor of most celebrities in that position now. Like I'm going to play at being mean, but I'm not being mean at all. In fact, it's pretty safe. You know, whereas Wendy Williams would get up there and say, Natalie Portman, here are my eight problems. Problems with you. I ranked them. <laughs> uh, there's a moment early in the documentary where she's flipping through magazines and I don't know. She's she sees a photo of JLo and Ben. It's it, I presume when they got, first got back together, and she's like, Well, this girl, you know the problem with her? She'll dump him immediately. She dumps all of them. That's her problem. <laughs> and you just miss someone talking about celebrities that way or a radio show where someone would call in or a talk show where, where there would even be some tension to be had. I mean, the last tense-filled talk show moment that we got, it was last week, and we didn't even get to see the tense moment. I'm, of course, talking about Kelly Rowland on the Today Show. Oh, yes, where she left because the dressing room wasn't big enough. And who did get the big dressing room? J-Lo was there. Of course, yes, In the big one, which is... (laughs) Why is she always at the scene of the crime? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Compare notes, cops. She's always there. Yeah. <laughs> All roads lead back to J-Lo. Yes. Right, right, right. But J-Lo was in the dressing room that Kelly wanted because apparently they offered her this broom closet. Uh, and people did chime in to say that the rooms are notoriously very small. Uh Bethany Frankel even chimed in. This is what I mean about the radio sort of vibe. Bethany Frankel is, we now just mostly have celebrities like Bethany or Azalea Banks or Nikki who do their rants online. Yeah, and jump out. In like a live stream. Yeah. But there's no interaction with other people, you know? It's just sort of themselves is what we have now. But Rita Ora is the one who ended up with the room. She came in last minute. And uh, replace Kelly Rowland on the show, which, you know what? If you stay ready, and Rena Ora stays ready. <laughs> She's at like a starting line. She's like Flojo in position, ready to dart out to Rockefeller Center. <laughs> Someone also did point out, by the way, the difference is Kelly Rowland lives in Los Angeles. And flying in with a mm. team and probably different wardrobe changes is more difficult than... Rita Ora being in New York at the moment and just running over already dressed. And most celebrities who do the Today Show, if you're in New York, you're probably just getting dressed at home. You're not doing other things within a dressing room where you need it. Is she still with Taika? Yeah. Okay. You don't really hear about them anymore. I, I, I hate when you, like literally the other weekend, I was like, are Dakota Johnson and Chris Martin still together? They are. You just never hear about the two of them. We're just focused on the Madam Web of it all right now. Well, if you follow Rita on Instagram, you see photos of her with Taika. But I will say the fervor of I'm dating Taika Watiti, we're getting married, sort of stopped after the wedding. Right, right. Just like in real life. Now- yes. Good, good luck to them. <laughs> good luck to them. <laughs> I want to talk about another Wendy moment that I don't know if you remember. Do you remember when she called Monica... And the singer Monica, Monica hung up on her. Yes, <laughs> hung up on her because she, <laughs> there was a thing I guess Wendy used to do where she would try to call the celebrity but pretend it was somebody else. Oh my god, that is because so if they funny. knew it was Wendy, if they knew it was Wendy calling, they would not take that call. And what what, what did she claim to be like one nine hundred flowers? Like what what excuse I, did she have? I, I forget exactly, but I know there's also Mariah Carey hung up on her once. She would just mix it up with these people. She both also that's the other thing. She clearly did love them, but then also was not enamored of them. That was the difference between mm-hmm. Wendy Williams and most like celebrity interviewees. Yeah, there's there's still this sort of need for a lot of people. I mean, look at us. Please. You know, somebody comes on the show and they're the first thing out of their mouths, that is the best thing anyone has ever <laughs> said about me. Because we spice them up with the intro. Yeah, right. And then we just keep it going. You know, uh, it's rare that someone comes in and it's rare that a celebrity, by the way, even goes on an interview with someone who they know that they have tension with. Right. And yeah, why would they put themselves in that position? You know, and now that there's several channels, now that social media exists, it's just so much easier for celebrities to control their own narrative that way. You don't have to experience the tension of sitting down with Wendy Williams or being on her radio show, et cetera, because you could just. Speak to the public yourselves. Right. Now, Z-Way, of course, is an exception to this rule, and she plays with tension, and the whole point you would get on the show is tension is the gimmick. That said, I don't know what form she's going to take in the next couple of years. We had Z-Way do the um, George Santos thing, but 
I don't know what's happening for her in the future. But I would also say there was more tension in the Instagram Live. Yes, right, right, right. Because because like, because there were the comments from the people watching, and there was the sense that this was a little bit more dangerous. You know, the George Santos thing didn't feel dangerous to me at all. No, right, right, right. He arguably even kind of won in a certain way, since you know. He's among the worst public figures we've ever had. And he came out of it looking, you know, like a witty Build-A-Bear, which is what he's always dressed like. Which is also when you think about the fact that have we even been talking about George Santos since then? No. I feel that was his last gasp of here's a platform that I'm on and people can see that I'm funny. But even then, he's not important enough to keep going. So the point is, Wendy Williams, what you stood for, what you still stand for to me, important. Honestly, she's an important figure. Yeah. And I just hope that this documentary, if anything comes out of it, someone in the family who actually cares about her gets control over her again. And also, if you got your money at Wells Fargo, pull it out, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That's the other message of this. Wells Fargo, she kept saying, Wells Fargo got my money. I kept flashing back to undergrad at Loyola. And I was like, you know what? Wells Fargo used to fuck with my money, too. The Music Man really set up unrealistic expectations about (laughs) Wells Fargo to me. (laughs) Shirley Jones, I blame you. (laughs) The Wells Fargo wagon? Let's talk about it. (laughs) Next, we have Denai Guerrera joining us to talk about her return to the Walking Dead universe in the new spinoff series, The Ones Who Live... And we're also going to talk to her about theater, etc. So we'll be right back. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Our guest today is a hero of the modern era. You definitely know them from The Walking Dead, from The Black Panther. But lest we forget, she's also a UN Women Goodwill Ambassador and a Tony-nominated playwright. So truly, she can do it all. She's back on our screens in The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live, and we are so thrilled to welcome to Keep It, the incomparable Denai Guerrera. Hello. Hi. How are you guys? I am fabulous. How are you, Denai? Thank you. That was a very kind introduction. I'm good. I'm good. Doing well. 
I still think of The Walking Dead as a new show because it is, you know, so state of the art. You would never watch this show and think it belongs anywhere else in time but the present. This show has now been on so long. You are like the Fraser Crane of zombie characters. Uh, <laughs> just generations of you on this show. When you began your journey with this show, did you ever think it would be this long lasting, this epic? I, I had no idea. I had, it's always like, you know, for me with acting, it's always kind of unexpected. Like, oh, where did this come from? Okay, this is great. Um, um, it's just always the sort of thing where you, I could never have thought of this show or this character. Um, in if you had asked me before, I, it just came to me. And then I was like, oh, my God, I really love what these people are doing. I loved the show. I'm scared of horror. So I hadn't watched it. Um, I came in season three and, and caught up because I really was in love with the character on the page. Um, to imagine that it would go that far. I, I, I did not think that way because all I was thinking was, can I get through this Georgia heat swinging around this four foot sword? And, and stay alive another day. That's what was going on in my head day to day. Not many people get to ask themselves that question. Wow, what a rare moment. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> and then I have to ask, you know, you exited the series after Andrew exited as well. But now your characters are reunited on The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live. And what's it like <laughs> to finish playing a character and then to rejoin again were you prepared to play Michonne again yeah I mean the thing that we had done was as as Andy exited he said he wanted to complete the narrative in a different form for his character and um and wanted to to of course do that with me so when he left that was sort of on the page and then when I left it was sort of a contractual thing I was going to come back and do we had both left with sort of a uh, definitely with a dot, dot, dot uh, to the story, uh, him seeming dead but not being, and my character uh, finding proof that he was still alive and um, seeking to, um, to and not being able, to, of course, to not to, to let that go, as she would, as we know she is not that type of person. She's going <laughs> she's gonna, she's gonna to see a mission through. So, um, especially concerning him. So she definitely... Um, was always it was always a plan to complete their narrative we the, the the form it took and the time it took was a whole other story but the um <laughs> but the plan to, for their for to com- accomplish what we, we looked at is accomplish what you proposed you propose that these characters um have this like you know epic love and they are you know she's finding he's still alive we know he's still alive so we knew we knew ultimately we had to come and complete the narrative in some form, but stepping away for you know are the different reasons we did um, from the mothership. Um, we knew, we knew ultimately though the characters would be the the wig and the sword would be returned to <laughs> <laughs> at some point. <laughs> now you said when you started this show you didn't watch horror. Did you uh, over time become more interested in the genre, or have you stayed away from it generally speaking? Unless of course you're you know wielding a sword. Yeah, no, I, I still have have no interest in it. I, I grew. <laughs> I I really don't. I find it. I have a very active imagination, especially at night. So, and I like to. I like sleep. Like I don't want to wake up and start thinking about. Okay, let me go check. Let me just go check that door's locked one more time. You know what I mean? Like I just want. Like I get very hyperactive in the imagination. So I don't like horror uh, still, but I I don't mind 
being a part of it. <laughs> it's very strange. I was just at the Saturn Awards a couple weeks ago and it was just full of uh, people from all these genres and it's it's quite a cool bunch of folk, uh, but I still can't, I can hang with them on that realm, but just not on the screen. I did grow to love the work that, you know, Greg Nicotero's is fantastic, uh, um, you know, special makeup artist uh, for our show who created all that that amazing gore. And I did grow to love the the artistry behind what he did and the gore itself and how much how many times one has to be covered in it um dead or alive on that show uh so you know i grew to love the artistry behind the horror and that made me sort of um be tamed like it, it was tamed in terms of my experience of it um on the screen for for that one show but everything else no i'm still i'm still not into it not into horror still <laughs> uh well one thing i want to ask you about um we know that you are this amazing actress but you are also a really fucking good playwright and i've had the pleasure of seeing some of your work and i've also had the pleasure of seeing you in joe turner's come and gone oh my uh, god with really? Yes. Oh my god! Yeah, yes, I saw that production, and I believe that was your Broadway debut. And that's one of my favorite plays by August Wilson. And I want to ask you about being a playwright. What interests you about the craft and crafting your own characters? And then what freedom you feel then stepping into other things and not having to worry about any of that? Well, you know, actually, I, I really, that's so funny you saw that play. It was so long ago. That's amazing. Um, and I just saw, I saw Anjana recently and we were just reminiscing about it. Um, she's also from my grad school. So we, there were, we're a little, um, little bit of a little family. Um, so it was just so great to catch up with her and really excited for all that's happened with her. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I do. It's funny you mentioned August Wilson because as a playwright, there are times I, I turn to him for when I have writer's block <laughs> because there's something so unapologetic mm-hmm. about his voice. <clears throat> Not because I'm trying to imitate him. Of course, never would. Who could? But it's more about the fact that he has such a clear, unapologetic voice from the world that he's illuminating. And sometimes one needs a reminder and of, of their own unapologetic voice. And I've always found him to be such a powerful uh, manifestation of that for for myself as a black writer. Um, but yeah, the reason why I started to write was because I just simply could not find any narratives that told the stories I wanted to tell. It was really necessity being the mother of invention. I just was like, I can't find um, stories. I grew up, I was, I was born in the Midwest that I, um, my parents were here for university and then my parent, my father was a professor here. And then I moved to Zimbabwe when I was five, six years old. So I grew up there, came back here for college and been here ever since largely and was largely like, um, where are the stories around, you know, and I'm studying this craft. I couldn't find the stories around African women or just that were multidimensional that didn't put us as very objectified roles and, and I found that really problematic and unacceptable. So I just had to start doing it myself. And um, But then I found great joy in that because the, the joy often is when you see people that you, you know, that often don't get lead roles, get a lead role. This one actress, Pascal Armand, who's a Tony nominee from my play, Eclipsed, she um, was also in a play of mine called The Convert. She was the lead in that. And, um, you know, she that she'd been acting and really a very respected uh, theater actress in New York for many years. But she hadn't had a lead role till, you know, till I 
until she got the role in The Convert. And that's often what happens with black women, you know, is that they don't get to helm a narrative very often. And what that's kind of what's given me the most pleasure and the most joy is to see black women get to stand in the center of a narrative and um, and be that protagonist, be that character you, you, you take the journey with and uh, not be on the side, not be supporting, not, you know, but be the helmer. And we're so obviously capable of that. But it's surprising how rarely it happens. And Pascal is just such an example of that uh, type of issue. So that's actually where I find the most joy and where I keep feeling the need to continue to create is there's so many stories that I feel haven't been told and don't get told. And um, and there's so, when they land in my head, I, I, I have to pursue them because um, I feel it'll bless many uh, and many black women like me. Lupita Nyong'o also nominated for a Tony for Eclipse, we should mention. And I wanted to say you brought we brought up uh, mm-hmm. Anjanu taylor who was just in this movie, Origin, which Ira and I discussed uh, on the podcast. We were talking about just how awesome it is to see somebody, a, a lead character whose whole thing is, although there's an emotional component to the story, it's really just about somebody who's intellectually curious. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. roles have you just seen wherever, in plays, movies, whatever, that you think, oh, thank God, that's out there. Are there any uh, roles, performances you've seen recently that speak to this need you have to like uh, roles that are cool that you would that you yourself would have liked to have written, perhaps? Oh wow! Um, um, yes, that's such a brilliant example. And of course, the astounding um, filmmaker Ava DuVernay is so brilliant at that as well. Um, and you know, she's just been navigating that terrain to perfection. Um, Oh God! You put me on the spot with that. Ah! Well, you had to create so many characters. I, you know, I'm sure it's rare that you know, uh, you know, enough come around for you to just watch. Yes, yes. Um, I'm just trying to think of what I've watched recently. I've been, I've been in a bit of a hibernating writing mode. Um, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, what is the Black Griselda? That's what was going through my mind recently. <laughs> you know, but um, you know, that's just. That was a random Fair thought. question, yeah. <laughs> now I'm wondering. I mean, I know, I know she exists. I mean, now I've got to go find her. Um, uh, hopefully, you know, her story's already, you know, she, hopefully I, I will be outing her, but uh, in terms of her, her if she has a, an active operation. But I was just like, <laughs> think like, what, you know, who is that person in the, in the black realm? Um, but yeah, I think uh, definitely stories like, you know, stories that allow black women to just be all things. I thought, you know, I think, of course, you think of things that Viola's done. That's a beautiful example, you know, even with her show, um, um, How to Get Away with Murder. And then, you know, even recently with Woman King, you know, that's that's when we're starting to crack into new, into new ex- examples of how, yeah, yeah. Show us in all of our, all of it, all of our complexity. Let it be out there and let it be unapologetic and let us navigate and helm the damn story. It's interesting when Black Panther came out and even when your character debuted in Walking Dead, I feel like you spearheaded two characters who were unlike Black women we'd seen on TV before. I think ushered in this new genre of just being able to see Black women play characters like this. I think of the Woman King as something that is probably beneficial to Black Panther. Are you seeing more just fulfilling characters in television and film that you're being offered on on more for um, other women that you work with and consider peers and friends to be able to get those roles as well coming to them? 
Thank you. Yeah, I think definitely um, there these exa- more and more examples that come out, the more and more it becomes like, obviously, this should be done and it should be done more and more. And you're seeing it. You are. You definitely are seeing more of things like this where, you know, the story is being told from a black perspective and, and even often from a female perspective. We're starting to see that a little bit more and more. It's inching. It's inching. But at the same time, you know, in my um, my native tongue, my parents language, Shauna, um, which I wish I spoke better. There's a word that means, it's a word that's a, it's a panebasa, which means there is work to be done. And that's what I, that's what I feel when I hear you ask that question. I just think, I just think panebasa, you know, like there's still a lot of ground to cover. There are a lot of things that, um, you know, are still hard to get done and out there. And, um, and there's still, you know, that, that aspect of saying, yes, we have, let the story be complex. Let it be complicated. Don't try to simplify it to a, a generalized ideal of blackness. You know, that's I think that's where we're still um, we're still pushing. And uh, and, you know, so pane basa, but there has there has been work done. And I'm, I'm thankful to have been in any way, shape or form a part of that work. Um, uh, but, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Definitely. Also. So last year you got to play Richard the third in Shakespeare in the Park. Uh, did, was it this was so ever, fucking good. Um, so you saw that. Okay. Um, I can't yeah, believe I didn't get to see it. I'm, I, does that, I mean, like, that's the perhaps the epic stage role of all time. Is that an experience that lingers on you? Is it something you ever expected to do? No, it's nothing I ever expected to do. And I will say when I, when Oscar Eustace called me and said it, I just cracked up laughing. <laughs> I just laughed because he's been trying to get me back on stage for a long time. And I was like, oh, now he got me. Because this was, I was like, this is going to be a hard one to say. No. How do you say no to that, right? But at the same time, I just couldn't say yes because I was like, this is, that is absolutely terrifying. Um, and I was terrified and I just, I didn't give them an answer for months, him and Robert. And then I finally was like, you know, I just thought, man, I don't know. I think it was Sidney Poitier recently passed. And there was some, it was an interview I saw him say, he said something to Oprah that I said, girl, get off your butt and go do that darn role. Like, you know what I mean? This, think about what this man navigated at the time that he did, you know? Get off your butt and go do that thing. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Do I miss the guy? I miss the guy. I do miss the guy. You know, he was, he's a, he's terrible. He's a terrible human being, but you understand a lot. I understood him at the same time, which I don't know what that means. So, you know, but I just, I really did, um, I, I, I had a really, it was very diff. It was hard as heck. And it was it was very rewarding, and I I I remember him fondly. <laughs> that makes any sense. Well, also, I mean, it must be a relief to know it probably cannot get any harder than that. I mean, truly, what else is there out there unless you like performed like the entire Oristea like right in a row or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was it was extremely hard, and it was so hot. And I remember I was arguing; I had to argue down my wonderful um, costume designer uh, Dede. I had to argue with her because she wanted to put me in leather pants. I was like, "Girl, I will slide right <laughs> off." Uh, right down the river okay like i'm running up and down this thing for, for two and a half three hours like i can't do that is she i mean the look would have been cool but i was like uh-uh it's not happening so you know it's just all types of things that go into it like they they were recording it for pbs graded performances and and my director robert o'hara whose idea this was he was like he also directed my first play ever so we're old friends and and he was like, you know, we got to do something about how much Denai's sweating by the end of the first scene because she ain't gonna like how this looks on camera on television. So yeah, it was it was it was work. I mean, I think I 
I don't know how many pounds I dropped just doing that role. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I, I always wanted to do the hardest thing, the action thing. And a- he was like action plus all the language you could ever want. And <laughs> I do love, I do love Shakespeare and I've, I've always, you know, had a affinity for it to some extent. And so I've um, done Shakespeare in the Park before and loved that performance. Uh, I mean, I love that experience. Though she's the opposite. She was a nun, a, a virtuous nun, Isabella. So I think I've done the whole gamut in two roles. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I, I love the people I met there. One of the amazing actors I met, um, um, Matt Jeffers, who you will meet on the show, um, The Ones Who Live. Because I just, I was working with him and I was like, oh no, this, he's got to, he's got to come, he's got to come into the, into the Walking Dead. I mean, what the heck? And, um, <laughs> and I just told my two co-creators, Andy and Gimple, I said, I have, we have the Nat. The Nat is a character my character gets very close to in the show. Uh, she looks for Rick. And I was like, I think I found him. And, and Gimple came and saw the show and, and agreed. So, you know, it was, I made some really, uh, there's some beautiful, wonderful people I got to know. And, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. What do you love about theater the most that aren't your works? Any playwrights that you're really enjoying? Um, any sort of stories that you enjoy watching that are not the stories that mm-hmm. you want to tell, but stories that you're like, it is nice to sit in a theater with people and enjoy this story communally for a couple hours. Oh, yeah. There's so many great playwrights. I just um, just was just celebrating my dear sister, uh, Jocelyn Beal. She her play was just recently oh. on Broadway. Judges, um, yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah. And, uh, she's I a love that play. Yeah, yeah. And we were, you know, she's she's a you know someone I'm you know working developing works with, and someone I really adore. And so to see her work sort of fly like that, and and you know, they were that's sort of a story that really gets me because there were women who are immigrant um, hairdressers coming down from Harlem and going into the theater and, and, and seeing themselves in this great white way, as it's literally called, and, and really being able to celebrate themselves and, and a reflection of the narratives and the stories that they carry. And that to me is, is so powerful. And then of course, going out to such a massive audience at the same time as it did. So I'm really, I was really thrilled by her, uh, by this, that accomplishment for her. And, you know, I, I recently watched Fat Ham as well, which I thought was fantastic. Mm. Um, I would watch that while we were shooting um, The Ones Who Live. That was kind of our reprieve, was to catch some theater here and there from shooting outside in freezing Jersey. Um, so that was another fantastic piece of work. And another, and it did that thing that I love, which is it played on a classic, you know. Uh, it took a classic and, and made it its own, which, you know, I, I love that because I grew up, you know, in a very neo-colonial educational system in, in post-colonial Zimbabwe. And you know, so if they, if you're going to like sh- shove all this Western, you know, uh, you know, content down my throat, you know, I'm going to make it my own and figure out my way in. And it might be, uh, it might seem quite irreverent and, and, and so be it. And thank God if it does, you know, because it should. And so I love, I love that type of, uh, of, of way of getting at it. Um, there's so many, there's so many great, um, playwrights right now I don't think I'm gonna blank on it all but it is there are some you know of course as I mentioned 
you know, the, the stalwart of all, of all in a lot, lot of ways, of course. And I love Lynn Nottage. Lynn Nottage is like a mentor of mine um, and uh, has said words to me that have caused me to just, she doesn't even know what a one little sentence she said did for me. You know what I mean? She's just one of those. <laughs> and with such an astounding, generous heart and spirit and brilliance at the same time. So everything she writes, it's like, you know, you're just in a masterclass. Um, and I just, I adore her. I definitely recommend um, Dominique Morisot's new play, Sunset Baby. Oh, I love Dominique. Uh, yes. Yeah, so oh, yes, it just weekend. opened. Yes. Oh, fantastic. Yes, yes. I love Dominique. I've been trying to get her to go to Zimbabwe because <laughs> I have a nonprofit there where I take Americans to teach and uh, we're just figuring out the right time for it. But yeah, she's um, she's incredible. And I think she would be amazing. Now, of course, um, before we let you go, Black Panther is, of course, not live theater. But the way those movies are structured, everybody gets <laughs> such incredible acting moments that I feel like on set, you must just get to be face-to-face with people, you know, giving their all, giving, like, broadway size performances for the screen. You are, of course, incredibly arresting in these films. Do you have any favorite on-set moments watching other people act? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I came and watched a scene um, where Letitia is basically telling um, Baku um that he is going to fight in her war <laughs> and i just i mean i loved i was just in, i was just floored it was just so brilliant and um you know the, the 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 story you know we do a lot of shaping of those scenes there in front of the camera on the day you know so you don't i didn't know what was about to come out of her as she was being shot you know you didn't know what was going to come out and what she came through with and how she nailed that um, was so powerful. There were a couple moments that Winston, he te- you don't see it on screen, but he teared up because it was like, damn, like to see this power coming out of this this young woman in a way that is very, it's full of vengeance, it's full of war, it's full of a sense of destroying. I want to destroy that man in that, in that other place. You know what I mean? So he was so moved by just being in her presence. And I watched that and was just like, God dang, I just love this place. I love what I do for a living. To just watch those things come to life, you know, was really, really powerful. That's one that jumps to my mind immediately. Thank you so much for being here. I mean... uh, (laughs) I could go on and on. I could go on and on. I'm sure, I'm sure. No, I I remember the scene so specifically, too. So I'm like watching it as you're describing it. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Oh my God, you're such a fabulous interviewee, too. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Appreciate it, guys. Coming up, dialogue in movies. Good or bad? So over the weekend, Denis Villeneuve, uh, director of many of our favorite movies of the past few years, including Arrival, Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, where I believe Jared Leto just showed up and they filmed an entire movie around him being weird. They're like, you want to dress in gold? Great. Stick around. Uh, He said this. Frankly, I hate dialogue. Dialogue is for theater and television. 
I don't remember movies because of a good line. I remember movies because of a strong image. I'm not interested in dialogue at all. Pure image and sound, that is the power of cinema. But it is something not obvious when you watch movies today. Movies have been corrupted by television. Okay, first of all, bitch, don't you ever put television and theater in the same breath again. (laughs) Television is for entertainment. Theater is art. Movies are art. Theater and movies go together. I have to say, I actually am sort of grateful to hear this perspective because it's clarifying. Like when you see people come out of the Criterion closet and they're talking about like um, old auteuristic movies, I feel like they're routinely talking about images more than they're ever talking about characters and dialogue and stuff. And it's just a school of thought that I believe exists, you know, that movies are about image and sound and feeling enveloped. It is just not really why I go to the movies. I am... Truly mm. dialogue oriented. I am way more Mike Nichols oriented than Stanley Kubrick oriented. And um, I don't know. Do, do you concur with this perspe- perspective at all? What do you think of this? It's very interesting because I feel like as a person who has written for television, uh, as a person who grew up on American films the way that we did, especially queer coded films, it's all about di- snappy dialogue. It's yeah. all about people interacting. And I love theater as well, obviously. but. As I've been dipping into film more, obviously within college when I was watching certain films or trying to uh, educate myself on certain foreign films more, there is something to be said about the fact that non-American films do rely on images a lot more. And I will say that when I'm thinking about film It is a lot of the striking images that do hit me first before the dialogue. The dialogue is good, but when I think about my favorite directors, like um, Almodovar, Mm -hmm. for instance, it's it's all about those bright colors, the images, the costumes, you know, the the staging. And I mean, just speaking of another Denis, Claire Denis, Uh uh, a French director, that is all about. The image. I mean, Beau like barely has any dialogue in it. Right. And Stars at Noon, the dialogue is from Margaret Qualley and Joe Alwyn. And so you'd rather not listen to it anyway. <laughs> I have the feeling Margaret Qualley is going to win an Oscar in the next like six or seven years. So bite your tongue. I just For Drive Away Dolls? Uh, maybe not. I hear Beanie Feldstein's good <laughs> in that. I haven't seen it yet. But it's just literally all of my favorite movies. It's about the dialogue ultimately. Like All About Eve doesn't exist without the dialogue. Even uh, Rear Window, a suspenseful movie which has... Plenty of spectacle in it. Lots to look at. Is about character dynamics before it is about being terrified, I think. I also wonder if you're like a film scholar and a filmmaker, if sound and spectacle, if those are the kind of things you're more impressed with yourself for achieving. Whereas I don't know that there are many people who pride themselves most on capturing, I don't know, a conversation or just somebody talking in a fascinating way, even though that's what I like most about movies. You know, I'm still recovering from Woody Allen sucking. I, that's like that's the mode of film I prefer, you know. <laughs> I think there's also something to be said though about people who do both writing and directing. Yeah, you would never say that a Tarantino film is not about the images in it, right? But you also would never say his films aren't about the dialogue, right? He is definitely equally obsessed with both. Like he loves the snappiness, as he is clearly a snappy person. In fact, he looks like he's going to snap most times you see him. <laughs> but then also, he's a turtle. Yeah, but also he's obsessed with old movies and. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Tributing things and then making things splashier than they ever were before. You know what I like about Tarantino? Refuses to be bored. 
That's something I do appreciate about him. Except for the Hateful Eight. So <laughs> yeah, there's the world's also, longest movie, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I also did a disservice to Al Motivar even there because his dialogue is also snappy oh, and yeah. it's funny. And that comes from the tradition of melodramas and telenovelas. And I just think that you brought up All About Eve. And that comes specifically, though, from a period where there was more of a blur between radio dramas, theater, and film. People right. were writing dialogue. There they were obviously beautiful, gorgeous images in probably more gorgeous images in Hitchcock than I would say in All About Eve. I actually don't really remember much of the visuals in All About Eve, to be honest. Um, I mean, I remember mo- scenes and moments, but you yeah. know, like visually stunning. I don't know how visually stunning it is uh, to me, but that's also just coming from when films were black and white as right. well. You know, you're not taking in all of those images. It's before Technicolor. So it is about the dialogue. It felt more theater-based. And I feel like as America started moving towards Technicolor, there was color and images and there's also dialogue. But then you had a whole school of people like Godard uh, or even, I don't know how much dialogue is really in most the Bergman films are about the images mm-hmm. a lot of times too, but they're also about a conversation too. So I don't know. It is, it is an interesting question that I feel like a lot of people were having fun with online. Right. Some people were like, well, you know what? That's true. But then also there are people who just prefer movies that have dialogue in them. And there are some people who really just only want that visual spectacle. I think also there's just a difference in, how people learn. Like some people, I consider myself more auditory. So the way people speak is going to resonate with me more. Whereas if you are entirely visual, I don't know, maybe conversations fall on deaf ears. Though I have to say, it feels crazy to me to say you don't like dialogue, but maybe it's with the, here I am getting into just pop psychology. (laughs) The love languages thing, how some people are words of affirmation and then some people Mm. aren't that. They're something totally different. All I am is words of affirmation. Please write a poem about me. That's what I want. (laughs) But some people, I guess, don't respond to that. I think words are just filling the air and not taking this dynamic anywhere. I mean, what's the last time um, he did dialogue anyway? Was it that talking fish in Maelstrom? <laughs> the, I would say I, Rival has some good um, dialogue scenes. Uh, you would not hire Amy True. Adams if you weren't didn't care about dialogue. But that's all about the board, too. You know, <laughs> it's all about the visualness of the aliens. Oh, sure. Uh, no, no, so no. it's speak. an unmistakably awesome looking movie. I do not mean to take that away from Arrival. But if you don't like dialogue, does that mean you kind of don't like actors? Like, that you think they could kind of be anybody? Like, in the Hitchcock way, where you're like, well, they're cattle to me. I honestly kind of feel that way about him. Yeah. To be honest, when you think about Dune, uh, when you think about the way he talks about film, I think it's all maybe a little bit sort of incidental to him, the actors. Case in point, I just saw Tenet. Again, uh, yesterday, it was rescreening for a week in IMAX because the whole narrative around Tenet was people didn't really get to enjoy it while they were watching it at home um, during COVID. And now you can really see it on the big screen. And unfortunately, that bitch was correct (laughs) because now I do love Tenet so much. Uh, But when you hear there was a conversation that Nolan um, had with Denis 
um, after a screening at IMAX and I watched it on YouTube and just their conversations where he was, where Chris Nolan was talking about working with the actors uh, versus where Denis Villeneuve was talking about working with the film. There was definitely an emphasis on the spectacle for him as opposed to working with actors. Like he talked about, he storyboarded the film and uh, writes the script. And then based off of the new storyboard for it, rewrites the script. So it's really about getting these visual images Mm -hmm. working, you know? And Nolan talked about how the scene where John David Washington is fighting himself, right? Mm -hmm. They did that one first. They did not use any reverse camera work on that. So what happened is John David Washington learned that fight two different ways. He learned it the regular way, and then he learned it the inverse way, if you know Tenet. Like, it's about the inverse time going backwards when you're, you know. I get the movie now, but it took me a minute. Uh, I was very stoned the first time I watched it. Um, But he learned that two different ways, and it was about him working with the actors. And I don't know. I think from him doing Oppenheimer as well, and that (laughs) very um, serial killer note that he left on Killian Murphy's script, it was – Finally, a lead for you now, you know, which was I, <laughs> that seems like something a, a mean gay director would do, yeah. like Truman Capote leaves that to one of the swans or something. <laughs> but even that, the he is a person who likes dialogue because there's so many quiet moments in Oppenheimer, that oh, are yeah. just people speaking, you know. And it's, I think that he is a well rounded director where he loves the dialogue. And he also loves the visual spectacle of a movie, but yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a harder one to really sort of parse because obviously I love dialogue, and there's certain films I love with dialogue, but there's also some films where I just really love letting the images wash over me, and I do think at the end of the day, film is more about the visuals than. The dialogue. I mean, I think it's hard to be empirical about it, but I think Oppenheimer is a good example of like the middle of the movie when it's about the bomb and the the suspense waiting for that moment to happen. You know, the world ending sort of mushroom clouding uh, Oppenheimer's vision coming to be. And then the last half of the or the last act of the movie. The, everybody sort of testifying, that's when the movie to me becomes like a play. Like it's, a, you know, it's compelling in the way something like 12 Angry Men might be or, you know, uh, something from the 50s where it's on stage and everybody gets a turn to talk and we're just, you know, the as the audience, we're being clued into all these different perspectives and, you know, finally hearing from Emily Blunt and uh, finally hearing the true intentions of Robert Downey Jr. You know, these these reveals that all come through conversations. And I think that's ultimately why, I like I prefer dialogue in movies over spectacle is because it just it reveals something about the character itself, which I find to be the most exciting part of a movie. You know, like, ah, now I'm learning what that person really is. That's fair. But I would also say that a lot of the colors or a lot of costumes sort of reveal who people are, too. So I don't know. I think there's just a different school of thought of people who love one or the other. And I think more often than not 
a French director just isn't going to give a fuck about True. I do have to say the Frenchness is coming into play here, I think. Um, and also, you know, if you don't like dialogue that much, I think maybe therapy is for you. I don't know. I feel like maybe you could tap into something here that will help you ultimately in your journey to be <laughs> a person. Actually, this may stem from the fact that there's a TV show that I still don't know if it's happening and maybe uh, he decided that he didn't want to do it anymore. But... Villeneuve was supposed to be directing an HBO series that was announced in 2020, produced by Jake Gyllenhaal, being written by Jonathan Nolan. This was announced in 2020, but I haven't heard anything about it since. So maybe he tried his hand at television and said, fuck this. Mm, I would actually love it if that were the case. Because, I, you know, when I watch something like the SAG Awards and the TV actors are just mingling with the movie actors, I get uncomfortable. I mean, I truly think they should have different catering. I'm sorry. The, Sandra Huller <laughs> has to be around, like, Modern Family alums. Does that sound right to you? I don't think so. Well, you know Sandra Huller's going to be on Only Murders in the Building, probably, Ugh, at this point. I'm going to leave the studio. I need to not. <laughs> I need to not be here. I guess if Meryl's there, it makes it okay. By the way, Meryl and Martin Short should we talk about that? I'm sorry. So they lied to us. They're clearly dating or something. Mm. Well, I feel like that's beautiful for them. It sure is. It's arguably the most beautiful thing I've seen. <laughs> Let us in on it. We're watching it. You're beloved. I need to catch up on Only Murders, and then maybe I'll be more invested in that relationship. Oh, okay. But I mean, it's just like her... Um, her slyness, by the way, at the SAG Awards this weekend, she did like a physical bit where she pretended to bump into the mic and she said she forgot her glasses. Girl, that was some Comedia Del Art shit. I believed that. <laughs> <laughs> All she the setup me for good. the Devil Wears Prada reunion. Right. Yes. And they came in with like her glasses and her bag. That was fucking awesome. She really did go to Yale. Uh, you've got me thinking now about the divide between film and TV. Who are people who have not done TV yet? Kate truly Blanchett? Like, no, she did Mrs. America. Limited series. Does that count? I guess it does. Yeah, because she also did Mildred Pierce. No. no, that was Kate Winslet. Yeah, that was Winslet. Yeah. The Kates. Right. They're, they're, honestly, that's the same bitch, okay? <laughs> you cannot. That is some Hannah Montana shit going on. <laughs> I'm sorry. And they both started Woody Allen movies way too late. Yes. Yes. I can't say... Oh, well, Robert Downey Jr. did... Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. Well, he's not doing anything. Right, no. He's like, I assume, painting or something. It's a great... I'm walking around New York uh, in um, Gen Z outfits. Right, Is yeah, what he's doing. Exactly. Probably looking amazing at 67 or whatever. But I think that he may be one of the last holdouts of people who just have not done television. I mean, Meryl's done it now. Julia Roberts has done it. Right. No, it's upsetting. I, I believe in these bifurcations. This is where I believe in a binary. This right here. Has Denzel done TV? Yes. Yeah. Denzel started in TV. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Denzel is a pretty good answer, though. Yeah. Yeah. But because I feel like maybe Denzel and Clooney, I feel like these are people who started in television. And then since the transition to movies have not gone back. Right, right, right. No, I can't imagine. Oh, Tom. Of course, Tom Cruise. Yes, which is crazy yeah. because you would think he would... I mean, we have movie... There's like a Jack Reacher TV show and stuff. There's plenty of things he would be a fit for on television, especially in this age of spending tons and tons of money on a streaming series, but... Yeah, well, 
I feel like the Mission Impossible movies are basically a 27 season running TV show at this point. Yeah, no kidding. Exactly. (laughs) All right. When we are back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. And I would be remiss to say that we, our producer told us during the break, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, yes. Since Growing Pains has not been back on television, he's produced a lot of things, but... He's like, keep me off this mall screen. He's like, don't watch me on your phone, bitch. He, he and Marty are like <laughs> fist bumping on that. <laughs> Marty, though, has done TV. Girl, he threw vinyl at us, and I'm still injured. And remember Boardwalk Empire? Right, which might still be on. There's no telling, and it's rude to ask. Never has there more been a show where people were continuously telling you about its importance while it was on the air, and now since it's gone off the air, I haven't heard a single person talk about Boardwalk Empire. And by the way, where is Paz de la Huerta? Uh, Honest question, and I believe we should be concerned for our safety. (laughs) What is your keep it this week? Oh, right, the show. Uh, My keep it is... Uh, involving an album I'm listening to obsessively again. I bought it when it came out. It's now 20 years old. I said I didn't really care for Confessions having a 20th anniversary um, uh, renaissance, and the internet was upset. You know what? Good good for them. They should have spoken up. I'm glad. But I'm talking <laughs> You tweeted about, that? Yeah. <laughs> I did not know I said it on the podcast here. Um, oh. After Usher's Super Bowl. But I have been listening to Gwen Stefani's Love Angel Music Baby, and... All things considered, a pretty perfect pop album, except for what I'm going to say my keep it to, keep it to Long Way to Go with Andre 3000, the <laughs> final track on the album. I don't, I can't think of another album like this. Maybe Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa, where up until the last track, it is flawless. It is a, it is an artistic vision that is very narrowed in. It's, you know, Gwen Stefani had this very candy-coated designer aesthetic that was both winking and gleefully... Mm-hmm legitimately stupid she went for it and the pop hooks were popping i mean like uh what you waiting for is produced by nelly hooper who did uh, all of bjork singles from the early 90s like human behavior mm-hmm. and it's oh so quiet and did uh, bedtime story by madonna uh you had cool which has a wonderful video you had holla back girl which is of course one of the great uh, radio songs of all time and a a fun rejoinder to courtney love allegedly who wouldn't stop making fun of uh gwen stefani at one point but you get through the album, and there are so many lo- lovely songs. The Real Thing is a great uh, non-single. Serious mm. is a great non-single. Then she makes an attempt at racial healing, which I'm just going to say she is not capable of achieving on Long Way to Go with Andre 3000, where she says, when snow hits the asphalt, cold looks and bad talk come. Is it supposed mm-hmm. to be written like something from the Harlem Renaissance? Because she, I don't <laughs> feel, is familiar with the works of... Langston Hughes. I don't know what she was going for with those lyrics. Cold looks and bad talk come. First of all, that is a direct lift from County Cullen. Okay. okay? <laughs> I clearly I'm unfamiliar. It's been I haven't okay. been to college in a couple years. <laughs> for like we jazz that June song. Gwendolyn Brooks writing. Come on. That song. Going back 20 years when this album first came out, when I first got my little hands on LAMB. <laughs> yes. Nice, nice. I remember getting to that song and recoiling. Yeah. True, and going, what the fuck? 
It sounds weird because it it came out around the time of Khalees's album. Yes, uh, Tasty. Tasty. And Andre 3000 has a song on that album with her called Millionaire, right. which is one of my favorite songs. But they are talking about um, capitalism and, you know, being a rich bitch and telling the truth to your friends, et cetera. All the things that uh, rich people, celebrities think about all the time. Right. You know? Uh if I weren't a millionaire, would you still love me? That kind of vibe. And I think that that song is probably more suited to Gwen Stefani and, and Andre. Yes. Yeah, If yeah, it yeah. were, and maybe Khalees and Andre 3000 could have done a better version of Long Way to Go. But I also think that that song really should not exist. I love the beat. It's the definition of I like the beat, but... It is one of the most embarrassing pop songs that I've ever had to listen to. It's like saying you like the bread on a sandwich. I mean, put anything else on it, though. (laughs) Please, please. Um, No, it reminds... And then The Girls Will Be Girls, or Boys Will Be Boys, uh, the final song off Future Nostalgia, sort of has a similar, like, an attempt at saying something that just feels a little stunted and a little not thought out. But um, yeah. no. But uh, otherwise, man, I really do love love Angel Music Baby. And actually, The Sweet Escape, too, though I can't think of another sophomore album that sounds more like the songs that didn't get into the previous album. Like, literally, one at a time, the songs are not as good as what's on Love Angel Music Baby. You coming for Yummy? Yummy is maybe the best thing. I love Early Winter, also. Yeah. Gwen also, has good balladeer energy. That's something she and Madonna have in common, where they they strike the image of just you know, a uh, bubblegum pop star, but actually there's balladeer angst that makes them a little bit deeper than the average person you hear on the radio. Let us not forget Fluorescent. Love a friend of mine Another song that sounds like that. a Madonna song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. My a friend played Fluorescent at a party. Uh, like my friend who was DJ played Fluorescent a few weeks ago and I was, for a second, it took me a second to register that that was that song. And awful sweet escape because it was such a throwback. And there were people coming up to him asking, "Who is this? Or is this a new Gwen Stefani song?" And we were like, "Sweet escape, baby." Yeah. So that so so much of her first two albums have endured in a beautiful way. And I hope we get just the good ones when she does Coachella. Yeah. Right. Right. I do not want any of that Blake Shelton shit. Just an unholy union. Did I already bring up recently that she was inaugurated into the Orange County Hall of Fame, which feels like one of the shadiest accolades a person can receive? Her and Vicky Gunvalson. <laughs> oh, no. Not that Kennedy Center honors. <laughs> Last thing about LAMB. That song is also such whiplash for their really fun song that they have on the album, Bubble Pop Electric. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. A very silly um, song where it's sort of it, it takes it's like a 50s uh, make yeah. out in our car vibe except just yeah. deliriously naughty Johnny get out of here <laughs> <laughs> yes characters yes characters yeah this is 2024 and 2004 was a big year for pop music and especially for us with leaving high school right. and going into college so I don't know. I feel like every 20th anniversary this year is going to hit. Okay. Ashley Simpson, we speak your name. Come out of hiding. Autobiography? Yeah, right. The Shadow? We'll be belting that one. I think she announced that she's going to be doing something, tours, or at least a couple shows in New York or L.A. to celebrate 
uh, autobiography's 20th anniversary. And oh I recently saw her perform at, well, perform is generous. I saw her get into the booth with Ty Sutherland, who was playing a couple of her songs, uh, Pieces of Me and um, Lala at the Christian Siriano after party during Fashion Week. She hopped up. Did not remember the words to Lala, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, she was handing that mic around. Yeah. But pieces of me, she knew perfectly. Oh. She has not hit TikTok. Because right. someone Gen Z turned to me and said, just in the audience, it said, who is this? Unacceptable. And does this mean we're due for a Cara Diaguardi renaissance? My fingers are crossed. Honey, it's time. Well. Where are you? I want to know where you are. Well, Katy Perry is leaving Idol. So... Oh, there's a slot open. Oh, please return. Is Kara coming back? Yeah. The Kara Sots? A war-torn Kara Diaguardi coming back to American Idol. <laughs> Ira, what is your keep it this week? My keep it this week goes to a cinematic train wreck, as I call it. Uh, Mia Culpa, the new Tyler Perry film, which aired on Netflix. And you went for this? Now, you, went and, you went ahead and watched it? Which is a controversial thing to do with a Tyler Perry film these days. Okay, first of all, when a Tyler Perry film hits, it hits, okay? I thought I was going to get acrimony. I thought I was going to get temptation, confessions of a marriage counselor. Those are two very bad movies, which are very fun to watch, okay? I did not think I was going to get anything of the level of I can do battle by myself. Because mm -hmm. that one seems to at least have an emotional hook it's a story about taraji p henson as a single mother uh struggling to make it in the music industry but this is in his new vein of lifetime s thrillers okay just with hot people in them this stars kelly Rowland, uh who is absolutely gorgeous oh she is so in, gorgeous like, yeah like w one of our hottest celebrities, and they're they're routinely in photos with Beyonce. Kelly Rowland is the person who my eyes go to. Take that. I hope Beyonce takes yeah. note. <laughs> Beyonce is hanging out with TikTokers trying to sell that hair, Caroline. Okay, <laughs> uh, if you have fifty followers, you met Beyonce this week. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but I will say that. Kelly is also a very good actress, I feel like. I just wish that she was in something better than this. I would also say the same for Trevante Rhodes, who is also a gorgeous man, was very captivating in Moonlight, is very beautiful to look at in this film. Unfortunately, it's garbage. Mm. And more than garbage, because garbage could be fun, it's boring as hell. Now, that is a word I do not associate with Tyler Perry, so I do not know how that happened. And this gets me to Tyler Perry's recent comments about how AI is going to be awful and ruin the industry. That interview is extremely confusing. It's extremely confusing because he talked about how he had used AI himself. Right. And he's like, oh, I was going to buy $800 million worth of land to expand my studio so I could film all the time, but I'm not going to do that anymore because AI is going to change everything. We have to do everything in our power to stop it, except I also am not paying money to do the thing that would help stop it. Also, it sounds like your films are already being written by AI. Right. <laughs> right. AI is doing a really good job with you, unfortunately. 
Need I remind you that everything is written, produced by, directed by Tyler Perry, lighting by Tyler Perry, hair by Tyler Perry, bad wigs. Uh, <laughs> Woven by Tyler Perry. <laughs> there, There is no, there. he doesn't have real crews. He doesn't have writers that he likes to pay, lest we forget his whole beef with the WGA from before. So... I don't know. It seems like Tyler Perry worried about AI is noble, I guess, but he's such a fucking lunatic. Right. I'm sorry. You hate AI, but you've used AI. You're making these bad movies. You don't want to pay crews. What are we even doing here? The- and it's so unfortunate, too, because I know, like, ugh, I know my mom probably loved it. <laughs> well, someone probably did. I mean, like, he's going to keep making them, obviously. So the internet told yeah. me this week that when he tries calling Aretha Franklin, Aretha Franklin makes him do the Medea voice on the phone, which is a good way of reminding you who you are when you're talking to Aretha Franklin. Do your yippy little voice. Okay, that's enough. She's, Bye she, now. She, she said, get it right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you won't be Zooming her. I have been spinning that song nonstop for the past month, by the way. Get it right? Get it right. Oh. Yeah. I'm very obsessed with uh, Aretha Franklin's jump from the original Sparkle soundtrack. And now we're okay. going to jump. But anyway, this is just peak Tyler Perry sounding the alarm about AI when you admitting that you've used it in two of your films already. Right. He's very like outside of bounds of the conversation we're trying to have. Yes. Uh, he is. He is who he is, you know, pretty good in Gone Girl, <laughs> I have to say. Get back to acting, baby. Right, and being like seventh build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Th- that ad. He was also one of the only good parts about that Netflix movie, the one where he was in oh, it with Don't look up. Kate Blanchett. Don't look up. Yes, yes. A movie we tried to give a best picture nomination to, and then we did, and then society got a little worse. Yeah, you know, it's the white American fiction. Yeah, there we are. Ding, ding, ding. Wow, we really yeah. that was really something Leonardo DiCaprio was passionate about. Hmm, makes you think. Well, he does love the environment. Right. I, I assume they sent him a big script that had just uh, a piece of masking tape on it and uh, in pen, the environment written on it. And then he's like, oh, I'm interested. And then he picked it up and read it. Like, remember that whole period where all we used to get from news stories about Leonardo DiCaprio was about how he cared about the planet and about how he was getting solar paneling yes. in his L.A. mansion? No, I told you, once upon a time, I wrote a, uh, a prize for Billy on the Street, which was a, a signed bag of the environment by Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Actually, maybe that's why he dates such young women. Right. You think it's like a recycling he's ca- thing? He's caring about the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a recycling thing? <laughs> He, no, he believes the children are our future, Lewis. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Teach them well and let them lead the way. He He's actually yeah. building a team of planeteers. I see. Talk about somebody who needs a Wendy Williams interview, Leonardo DiCaprio. That is exactly <laughs> what we are missing from the tw- 2000s and 2010s. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's our episode this week. Thank you to the amazing Denai Guerrera. I mean, somebody who's on a TV show that long, also a Tony Award-nominated playwright. Who who has done it like her? Who has? Let me tell you, Tyler Perry. Oh, damn it. Fuck. I didn't even think of him. Yeah. yeah. She'll, she'll, she'll never be him. She'll never be glamour. <laughs> Unfortunately. She can do actually really well all by herself. How about that? Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, Louis Vertel, and Kendra James. Our digital team is Megan Patzel, Claudia Shang, and Rachel Gajewski. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to Matt DeGroote, David Tolles, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support every week.